swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning! In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine, past the diving Eric Carlos in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. So episode three, second episode from South Bend for you, but this will be the last time and then we'll be back to your man cave for the next episodes. But it's been a great trip so far. It seems like you got to catch Griffin's 18th home run, which now leads the minor leagues. And uh, what's the experience been so far out there in South Bend catching some minor league games? Well, it's just that it's minor league baseball. So uh, kind of brings me back to my start, obviously, in, in uh, pro ball with the Royals. And you go to these small towns all over America. And, uh, you know, right now in South Bend, I mean, they got a beautiful ballpark. Um, uh, the Cubs facility, very nice. Uh, South Bend's a nice little town. Uh, we've had a good time with Griff so far. And, uh, you know, I got to see a home run, which I always love seeing home runs. You'll be able to see plenty of those. And have you had a chance to talk to the players, interact with the team at all now that you're uh, around there? Are you more so just on dad duty, not the uh, 17 year vet? Yeah, yeah, dad duty. You know, I've seen or run into a couple of the guys in the lobby. Uh, one of his, uh, Bubba Hollins, who was one of his early roommates here this season, uh, who was the son of Dave Hollins, who I played against when he's with the Phillies and uh, Angels, I think. But, um, which I didn't know. I didn't know when, when he said Bubba's going to come to dinner with us when we were in Beloit. Yeah, my dad's Dave. He said to say hello. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it's crazy. How many kids now that I played with, the guys I played with, their kids are now in pro ball and you know, some are even in the major leagues. It's crazy. And, and we're going to talk about that because we obviously have to talk all-star game today. And as this episode comes out, it'll be our last episode before the all-star game. And there's a lot to discuss there. Obviously you played in two of the midsummer classics and I was looking at some of the rosters and those, I mean, it's the all-star game, but still those rosters were absurd. And what I noticed is a lot of those guys that were playing in that game with you in, uh, in the mid nineties were guys that have sons in the game now too. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of those players, but first we, we always have to start with the Jersey and today you're donning a white Cardinals jersey that it looks newer. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Pujols. I can't see the number on the bottom. That's going to, that's going to be my guess. Albert Pujols. Good guess. Good guess. Um, I do have one of those, but uh, it is not Pujols. We're going to go. It is actually much older school. Uh, I know it looks like a new jersey, but um, yeah. You just keep it clean, huh? Very clean. It's been hung up ever since I got it. But uh, have they not changed their logo like at all? That- I don't think so. I mean, this is it's pretty old school here. Um, I can't remember when I got it signed, but it's been a long time. So, oh, you might have me stumped on this one. Okay, who who is it? Oh, it's Ozzy. How could <laughs> how could I draw a blank on Ozzy? Okay, that's a sweet one. Okay, I definitely want to hear this story. So, it, for those who are listening, you just put the camera down. I saw the number one, and I'm like, oh, okay, there we go. Okay, so what's the story behind Ozzy Smith? Well, I mean, Ozzy Smith, for me, uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest shortstop of all time, uh, even to his very last days of playing, you know, you know the tradition of him come out and doing the backflip on opening day and uh, the acrobatics he showed on the field. Uh, was second to none for me. Um, him and Omar Vizquel were probably two of the guys that that you knew if it was coming their way, you're out pretty much anytime. And these aren't guys that were huge, physical, strong guys now that you see like the the Cal Ripkins and that generation of the Alex Rodriguez's of these six-foot three shortstops with massive power. These guys were wizards with the glove. Duh, Ozzy, the wizard. Uh, yeah. But... Um, the reason I have this jersey and the reason I respect this guy so much, we're talking all-star game. My first all-star game in 1994 was in Pittsburgh and we're riding on the bus. You know, I walk into that locker room and it's only my second full season in the big leagues. And I see those jerseys hanging up in that room. And I'm like, what am I doing here right now? This is insane. The names that are on the back of these shirts that I get to play with. So, 
uh, we're on the way to the workout and my dad is with me in Pittsburgh and he's driving uh, on the bus with me to Pittsburgh and right across the road from me is Ozzy Smith and Ozzy Smith is just talking to me like, you know, it's probably his 14th or 15th all-star game. And he's just asking me about my first experience and, and how I'm enjoying it. And, uh, just a, just a, one of the nicest men you'll ever meet in your life. And from that day on, every time I saw Ozzy Smith, every time we played against him, he always asked me how my dad was every single time. Hey Jeff, how's your dad doing, man? Oh, he's a great guy. I really enjoyed meeting. He met him that one day uh, on the way to the all-star game and Ozzy Smith from that day forward, always asked how my dad was doing and just a, just a great human being. It's amazing the little things like that, right? Just checking in, remembering a family member and, and seeing how somebody's doing. It just kind of shows that next level of caring. And this was a guy that, so at that point in his career, not that it makes a difference. I mean, you are who you are, but still to be at that point in your career where I don't think the all-star game got him as fired up like the how dozen 13th time or whatever, as it did maybe for you, but he goes out of his way to make that first all-star game a bit more memorable for you. I, I, that's something that I'm sure uh, stuck with you, even as you got through deeper into your career too. Oh, big time. And you know, those are those uh, interpersonal reactions or relationships that you create early in your career, or those impressions that you have from these superstar players that uh, really made an impression on me for forever. And I, you know, I always remember those times. Uh, there are a few with Ozzy, but those times that I spent with him were uh, he's just a great guy. If I'm not mistaken, he's the guy that really patented that long, the long bounce, right? Where you dive back in the hole because he played on the Astro turf, right? So he was, was he one of the first guys that really patented the the one long hop to first base from deep in the shortstop hole? Yeah, because I mean, Ozzy, I mean, toward the end, especially, he didn't have a, he didn't have an overpowering arm. So he couldn't rely on that cannon from the back cannon just firing across the diamond. So him and Vizquel both. Uh, were those guys that when they were off balance or they knew they didn't have the arm strength to make it all the way there, they would give that nice long hop to the first baseman. And the releases were so quick. It didn't, that, that made up for their lack of arm strength because uh, the accuracy and the release time was off the charts. And these all-star rosters from the two years, because you were back-to-back years, 94, 95 uh, on the all-star team. And I'm looking at it right now, uh, just the names, like you mentioned, you walk in and you're looking at these, at these players it's absurd that you were, you know, even just to be considered with these guys would be just the craziest thing in the world to me. I, I just couldn't even imagine the names on both sides, right? You'll get the NL team. You got Tony Gwynn, Barry Bonds, Mike Piazza, David Justice, Ozzie Smith, Greg Maddox, Jeff Bagwell, Fred McGriff, Craig Biggio. And then you have yourself right there, uh, right in with those guys. And uh, it's just unbelievable to me, just like how stacked. I don't know if it's a little bit of nostalgia or me looking back. And I know we'll probably look back at some of the recent All-Star games and say the same thing 10, 15 years from now. But to me, it just seems like this was an extra stacked team. But maybe that was just the mid-90s effect. I I don't know. Is this one of the more loaded All-Star teams you've seen on both sides? Because I didn't even talk about the other side. That has Frank Thomas, Ken Griffey Jr., Cal Ripken and Kirby Puckett and Pudge. I mean, yeah, it's that generation, our generation, and now those guys, all you, the ones you mentioned are in the Hall of Fame. So yeah. it's like you look at these Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame players that, that played in the All-Star game. And um, like you said, maybe in 15 years or 20 years, we're going to look at today's roster and say, oh my gosh, look at all these guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it, was, it was that crazy roster. But now that we can, we have time on our side, we can look back and see what the, the greatest players of my generation played in these games and it was uh, quite a honor to be part of it. So this was something I wasn't planning on asking you, but now that I'm looking at it, I got to bring it up is, is Fred McGriff. I've always thought Fred McGriff should be a hall of famer. I, I just look at the numbers and I don't really understand why he's not. We're talking about 493 home runs. He played 19 seasons, uh, several all-star appearances, finished in the top five in MVP voting several occasions, 284 hitter. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on, just a hair under 900 with the OPS and led the league in home runs on multiple occasions as well. And this is when, you know, in the early 90s, late 80s, home runs weren't hit like they were towards you know the middle of your career, right towards the late nineties. Cause he led the league in home runs with 36 and 35. So this was a different era and he kind of transferred through to two different kinds of eras. What, what's your take on that? I mean, I think McGriff should be in, we're talking about 2,500 hits too. Uh, what, what are your thoughts as someone that, you know, played around the same time as him? 
I agree. I agree. Uh, hundred percent, you know, Fred McGriff was that guy that you really don't want to see at the plate when the guy, the game was on the line. Uh, he was a good defender at first base. Uh, this guy could do it all. And, you know, I, I was also, I was always kind of perplexed by the lack of support he got on the hall of fame ballot. Um, because like you said, the numbers speak for themselves. He was one of the premier power hitters of our generation. And he was up at the league leaders all the time and in both home runs and RBIs and he hit for average too. I mean, uh, he wasn't the, the one dimensional power guy that only hit home runs and drove in runs. He hit for average as well. And, uh, another quality human being that, uh, I love playing against, love it, love going to battle against. And I agree with you. I think he should be in the hall of fame. And that's the thing, too, is you think maybe, OK, well, if he's not getting the support. Maybe he wasn't likable or, you know, that's a component as well. We look at like Kurt Schilling, for example, uh, that guy's really struggling to get in. Uh, if you look at the numbers, he's he, more than worthy of being in there. But he has his own issues that uh, hold people back from voting for him. And to a lesser degree, that'll happen with some guys, too, and can be the difference of, of players that are teetering. What, what do you think of the voting process in general? Um, not to not to go too deep into it, but. I always feel like there's almost no perfect way to do it, right? There, it's difficult, but I've always felt that if you almost elected a committee of players, similar to the way you do with uh, representatives of the players association, but you, you have an elected group of distinguished veterans that uh, they don't even have to be in the hall of fame. It could be all types of players, but it could be hall of famers as well that decide on it. I don't know if it would become almost too exclusive in that regard, what are your thoughts on the way it's voted on right now in the era of writers and the personalities that go in with that as well? Well, you say it all right there because the writers deal with the players on a, on a daily basis and they have interaction with them. Um, you know, a great kind of story or point that I always make is that, you know, Kirby Puckett, who was one of the greatest players uh, of his generation, uh, he could do it all. And one of the greatest ambassadors of the game as well. I mean, this guy was one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet positive. The fans loved him. His teammates loved him. And that guy that got his career cut short from, uh, I think it was the eye, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whatever happened to his eye that, that he had to leave the game prematurely. He still had probably five years left of, of top notch, uh, league leading type, um, performance in him. And when you think about guys that could just flat out hit Kirby Puckett could flat out hit, he didn't walk. He didn't want to walk ever. This guy could hit a ball at any plane. Uh, kind of like that Vlad Guerrero, like we talked about the last episode, mm -hmm. he went out from his eyeballs down to his shoe tops. Doesn't matter. Breaking balls. This guy could make contact, solid contact on any pitch. So he gets cut short, um, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, after he gets other health, health complications and ends up passing away, he gets elected into the Hall of Fame posthumously. So you look at another guy that I played with. So when they voted him in, you know, he's obviously uh, with all the writers and, and one of their favorite people to talk to. Just like I said, a positive force for the game, a great ambassador. A guy that I played with who also got his career cut short because of injury, Albert Bell. So he had to leave the game because of a hip injury, you know, and he put together maybe 10 of the greatest seasons back to back to back to back all, of all time. The greatest 10 year stretch. You talk about power, uh, home runs, RBIs, average. This guy did it all. And he was uh, very combative with the media, uh, very surly with the media. He directed them to a website instead of giving interviews. And that's just what his personality was. And and the media didn't like him. He has no shot of getting into the Hall of Fame, but very similar circumstances to the way Kirby Puckett uh, was elected in. Albert Bell will not get elected in. So if when you ask me about the process, I think that has to be taken out of it because we're we're basically uh, electing people on their abilities on the field, unless they did something horrific off the field. Yes. All right. That's but just because you're you're not a nice guy doesn't mean you don't belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree with that. And, I, you know, somebody like Kurt Schilling maybe pushes the limit there of, of where you draw the line. And that's where I can understand it. But if it's a guy that just doesn't like the media, it, it is what it is. Right. And that's where the writers, I think sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of uh, making it about yourself in those instances where I've, I've seen that. And, and it's tough because you want to vote in the ambassadors of the game, too. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the best players. And you mentioned Albert Bell. 
I almost forget every single time when I pull up his numbers, how damn good he was. And we've had these conversations a million times at dinner about what he did at his peak. Uh, And even, I mean, you caught him uh, towards the end, right? Because that would have been in Baltimore when you caught him. And he was still putting up ridiculous numbers. And when we talk about what he did in just 12 years, uh, and and it was really 10 full seasons only, and he hit 381 home runs. He hit 295. 933 OPS. I, I mean, this is outrageous. This is no problem Hall of Fame if he gets even four more seasons in. He would have hit all the thresholds, really. And that's the other thing is, what do you think about the the markers? Like the 3,000 hits, you're automatically in. Uh, 500 home runs, you're automatically in, which is bizarre because I'm pretty sure there's only one or two. I'd have to look that up of like hitters with more than 500. There might not be any. I'd have to double check that, that have more than 500 home runs and aren't in the hall of fame. Like if McGriff hits seven more, is he in? (laughs) That's that's the thing that just gets me, gets my mind going crazy. Uh, What do you think of the markers? I do love that about baseball, the special aspect of that, like Pujols hits another threshold and it's a celebration. I think that's awesome. But also I don't know if they should be determining factors, right? I don't think so either, but you know, because those markers that we all like to look at 300 wins for a pitcher, 3000 hits for a hitter, 500 home runs for a hitter. These are all milestones that also take tremendous longevity to stay in the game, to get amass that, that many numbers. So, you know, when you look at a guy that might play 25 years and, and get his 3000 hit 3000 hits or a guy that uh, he plays 15 years and has 2,500. If he would have played 10 more, he definitely would have gotten 3,000. But he dominated his era. I think that's more important to me rather than amassing these numbers that are absolutely insane is how did he do in the time that he played? Did he dominate his era? And, you know, you go back to Albert Bell. He dominated his time in baseball. Whatever it was because he had to leave because of injury, he dominated that time. And for me – that is almost more uh, indicative of a Hall of Famer than playing a super, super long time. Yes, that's also uh, admirable, and, and you amass these numbers. But for me, when you dominate for that period of time, I think that's, uh, that should get a ticket to the Hall. Yeah, I'm waiting for somebody like Starwin Castro, who's been playing since he was 19 years old, and he's still only 31 and has over 2,000 hits. For that guy, if he pay, plays like 10 more years, which is unlikely, but he puts together 3,000 hits, these writers are going to, their brains are going to be scrambling because they're going to yeah. do we have to elect this guy now? There's going to be somebody, I hope, that has that longevity that's just super average for 23 years, and they're not going to know what to do with themselves. But speaking of comparing to eras and dominating your era, I – Part of the show is I'm going to always slowly introduce advanced statistics to you just to, to see how you react. And one of them, this is actually my favorite advanced statistic. It's WRC plus. And I know you're not a big war guy, but WRC plus is essentially just weighted runs created plus. You don't even have to know how it's computed, but it takes into account everything from the ballpark you play in your competition and evens the playing field. So that 30 home runs in Coors Field isn't the same as 30 home runs in Marlins Park and 30 home runs in 1970 isn't the same as 30 home runs in, uh, you know, 2008. So that's what it does Uh, for you. Your two highest WRC plus seasons, unsurprisingly, are your two all-star seasons, which is the highest season of WRC plus for you, which means just the, how good you were relative to the rest of the league uh, outside of those two all-star seasons. There were Ooh. two years. So you technically have two shots at this. Cause you did, you hit this mark twice and I'll explain the number uh, and, and how it relates to uh, the rest of the league. But you hit this mark twice, once with Baltimore and once with Miami. Uh, what were the two years or you can you even get one of them? Uh, I'm going to say probably 2001 in Baltimore. Correct. That's one of them. Um, And then outside my two all-star years also with Florida. Yeah. So one, this one's with Florida. Um, I'm going to say 96. Yep. You got it. (laughs) 96 and 2001, you produced a 124 WRC plus a hundred would mean your average. 24% above average essentially is what that mark is. Your highest was 134, which is absurd. And uh, 133 the year before that. So yeah, 124 WRC plus in 2001, where you hit 311, 
with a 390 on base almost. And then the year where you did it in 96, you hit 293 with a 360 on base. So that would probably mean just the league didn't do as well that year. So that's the cool part about it, which makes sense, right? Because in 2001, that's where we really saw the the home run explosion, right? So that's yeah. why I think the stat is interesting uh, is it takes all of those things into account. So maybe I can warm you up to that one uh, a little bit. Uh, I, like that one. I, went, I like that one a little better it, because it actually takes real data, real. Yes. Where, where war for me is a replacement player. Like what? Who's that? <laughs> who, who is the, player? Is the ghost that is the exact same everywhere you go? Or you, they say it's a triple A player. An average, I mean, I don't even know who that person is. And it's hard for me to grasp. For instance, <laughs> you know, I played with. Um, uh, oh, my gosh. I'm drawing a blank. First baseman with the. Um, Philadelphia Phillies, Ryan Howard. So I look at his uh, stats one year and he is the second in the MVP voting. I can't remember who was behind, but his war that season was 2.2. Cause he can't, couldn't throw right. 2.2 and he hit 48 and drove in 150. I think. Yes. 48 and 150 or 48 and 148, something insane or 50 and 148, something insane like that. And I'm like, you're telling me that you take away and put in a, this ghost average player that he's only worth two games over the entire course of a season with 50 home runs and 150 yeah. RBIs. That's I, I, insane. I totally, I totally agree. That's where it, it blows my mind a little bit. And I think I look at it, I almost have to look at it more abstractly, right? Like where it's just like, okay, use it as, as this uh, just number where you can compare it to others. But at that same notion, it doesn't really make sense because it's literally wins above replacement. So you're like, how is the only two? The funny thing about it too, is that your two all-star seasons were not your best war seasons. They, really? Your best war season was 96. So it, it just, it, it doesn't, it, it's a little bit weird. I, I'm with you on that one, but I'm going to get you on the WRC plus train um, right. because right. Griffin has one of the best, one, one of the best WRC pluses in, in the minor leagues. And it's really helpful in the minors because you know, you talk about the levels, right? Like certain levels, it's just hitters parks or it's just terrible pitching. And it, it helps you kind of keep that, uh, I guess, in context. But the, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, too, is when you were playing, what, what were the numbers like? What were the things that they pointed towards for you when you're talking about scouting reports and things like that? Like, was it just simple? He, this guy throws this pitch this frequently. Like, what, what were the scouting reports like then? Because I don't know if your, your son has shown you what, what they get. And that's in the minor leagues. I mean, I don't know if you've seen even recently from when you were you know working with the Marlins in the front office, like what kind of scouting reports they were putting together then. How starkly different is it from when you played versus now? And is it almost analysis paralysis? Or do you ever think if we had that, I would have had even more of an edge? You know, it, it goes, I think, both ways for me because, you know, back in the day we had uh, VHS tapes were our hitting tapes, you know. Now I can get on the computer and type in a name and I can have every pitch I've ever seen off of every pitcher I've ever faced. And what the locations are, the percentages, the spin rates, all this stuff where back then I'd have to like literally go backwards. Oh, that was a fastball away. But we had a guy that might chart the pitches. You know, they have a, a guy back behind the plate in pencil charting the pitches in a strike zone for each batter. So that's what I had to go off of. Uh, I love my hitting coach in Baltimore, Terry Crowley. He was like one of the most simple approach guys I've ever uh, been coached by. And he had a eight by 11 yellow lined piece of paper in his pocket. And that was his scouting report for the day for the pitchers. I'm like, Crow, who do we got today? And he, he'd uh, put on his reading glasses. He'd take out, his sheet of paper and he's like, Nina, all right, here we go. And he's like, he's fastball. He give me the velocities on his fastball. Give me his movement on his fastball. Uh, you know, the slider, the curveball, what other type of pitches he like to throw frequencies somewhat. And you know, that was about it. It literally, I just wanted to know what his fastball did. Was it straight? Did it move? How hard he threw it and what his best secondary pitch was. Because, you know, when you got a guy, especially very accomplished guys that have multiple pitches they can throw for strikes, you can't cover everything. So you might want to eliminate a pitch and focus on his two best pitches, fastball slider, mostly for righties, and fastball changeup, mostly for lefties. So uh, that's the info that I wanted to know. And nowadays, I mean, like you said, I think it's almost analysis by paralysis because they have so many metrics they can look at. They have so many uh, things they can look at, spin rates. Uh, you know, Griffin told me today that that 
he looks at spin rates coming in. If a guy's got a very high spin rate, he actually tries to hit differently on the baseball than he would a guy with a lower spin rate because perceptually the ball's not going to come in and lose its angle. It's going to stay on the same plane when it comes in and has this higher spin rate. I'm like, what? That's crazy to me. So, um, you know, I think it's more technical nowadays. We're back, uh, two decades ago, it was more feel hitting was more feel than it was now where it's more statistical. And is that better or worse? Eric, is that impossible to answer? It's, you know, it's almost impossible to answer. Um, statistically, I'd like to see, you know, what have the averages done from, uh, you know, 1995 or 2000 to, you know, 2010 to 2015 or 2015, 2020 with the advent of all these saber metrics, what are the, what are the averages done? I know the power has gone up for sure. They had more, they've hit more home runs than ever before. Yeah. Um, but I think that's more because the athletes are, are better trained. Uh, they're better in nutrition. They've got, uh, they're just bigger, stronger, faster athletes now than they were back then. So that's why I want to see when the field game was in, I would suspect possibly that the averages were higher overall. Whereas now there's more of a premium on power, home runs, swing and miss doesn't count uh, as much against you as it did back then. So uh, I'd like to see those numbers. So you know what might be next, right? I mean, we'll see how it develops, but next for hitters to prepare is, I think is going to be VR where you just put on some goggles and you can pretty much just simulate at bats against pitchers. And uh, that seems like it could be pretty helpful. I almost think it might almost be too helpful. If you're getting at bats against a guy, basically virtually before you get in there, depending on how the technology comes across. uh, I I do believe that might be the next thing. I know they're trying it with quarterbacks, looking at coverages. I I think that might be the next thing with baseball. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I keep saying back in the day, but when I played the the VR was your visualization, I was actually close my mind or close my eyes and visualize that day's pitcher throwing pitches at me and what I'd seen before. And you try to paint that picture in your mind, because if you're really good at visualization, kind of like VR, you, your body doesn't know the difference between mm-hmm. what your mind perceives and real action. So that was a, a big tool for me and how I got ready for a game. Well, I'm really glad you said that because the the fun part about this is like, I feel like I'm pitching the modern and you're pitching the human aspect of it of like, this is still what a ball player has to do. Right. And at the end of the day, you can have all of those things at your disposal, but there's things that you have to be able to do yourself. At the end of the day, you're up there. There's no technology strapped to you and you've got to hit the baseball as it comes in. And I've always been fascinated by how much visualization comes into play here for a lot of uh, athletes. And as somebody that studied psychology in depth, the, the things that I learned and how powerful visualization actually is for your brain and how you can create neural pathways and almost prepare yourself. Like you said, you can get almost reps by just visualizing it. And I wonder if that's something that we've gotten away from because you have it kind of doing the work for you. But at the end of the day, you have to create those neural pathways yourself. Um, and, and I wonder if sometimes getting back to the basics on some of those things, like visualizing yourself would actually help because I, I've read Michael Jordan talking about how he did that. Um, and modern players even that have said, that, Oh no, I still visualize all the time. And I wonder if that's something that we've gotten away from a little bit as a game, because we have all of these crutches uh, that are great tools, but at the end of the day, you got to do it yourself. Right. Absolutely. And I've, you know, I'm starting to see that at the young level too, with youth baseball, you know, they're, they're getting drafted. They're getting recruited just on pure tools because of what we can measure. So we're measuring on radar gun throws from the outfield and throws from the infield and throws from the first baseman across the diamond, which is the most worthless number ever. Right. Uh, We were getting exit velocities, you know, how hard it's the ball, how hard it's the ball. And these kids are getting drafted and, and going to college just on those metrics that they can produce on technology that measures that where they don't know how to play the game of baseball. Really? You don't have to know how to play the game of baseball. So I can move up in levels just because I can hit the ball really hard or throw it really fast or throw it really far or run really fast. But I would rather have a guy that has a lot less of all those numbers, but really knows how to play the game and can, can win for me rather than just show me something spectacular. Well, that is great that you mentioned that because you are on that side of things. Now you are 
a recruiter in a lot of ways too. I mean, that sells you way short. You're the associate head coach of Florida International University, a very, very good baseball program that has produced the likes of Mike Lowell, uh, you know, one of your former teammates and has produced plenty of talent throughout the years and half players drafted every year and some of the best recruiting classes in the country. And it's really exciting. I know you are super pumped about it, but it's also kind of a microcosm, I guess, what, like your experience now uh, is probably a microcosm of this entire situation of this conversation we've had, which is just the new school versus the traditional aspect of just baseball and finding the balance between the two. And that, I think that's why it was such a, a home run hire, no pun intended for, for FIU to, to bring you in because you're going to see the game differently. You're going to be able to identify those players that may fall through the cracks, the guys that don't put up the exit velos that get you at the top of the leaderboards on perfect game. Uh, But those aren't always the guys that produce. And I think we see it day to day in major league baseball. I mean, some of my favorite players from Jake, Jake Cronenworth uh, with the Padres, a guy that just was a teens round draft pick uh, was never really highly touted, never put up crazy numbers in the minors. And here he is in the majors, just continuously hitting the ball and he's reliable and he can play all over. And like, those are the guys you want in a college program, right? Like those are the guys that I think you would be able to identify better than, uh, maybe your average coach because you played the game. Uh, how's that adjustment been now? Uh, you're, you, you've been on a few recruiting trails already. Uh, it, it's so funny to see me or it's for me to see you uh, in this context of like recruiting. I've only seen you as the uh, baseball dad, uh, having gone to me and Griffin's games through the years. But how has that been for you on that side of things? And uh, what has been the biggest like adjustment to being on this side of things? Well, recruiting side of it, it's overwhelming. I mean, the first tournament I went to was in Palm Beach. Uh, They had to split different venues because there's 300 teams entered in this tournament. And it's just, there's like a thousand, there's like a thousand kids out there. And these are all competitive travel ball programs. There's a lot of good talent. So I'm like, where do I begin? You can't just go to every field and start looking at players and try to develop uh, a relationship or or, uh, have a program with one kid you've got to look at kind of the whole picture of things. So what I found is you got to get in with all these organizations that have multiple teams and you get to know the owners of these organizations and get to trust them. And they, they can feed you players. They're like, Hey, listen, uh, they know the kids that are interested in going to a Florida school. They know the kids that have the talent to go to a division one school. They'll call up myself or our head coach, uh, Merwin Melendez and say, Hey, I've got this kid for you. You might want to come take a look at him. He's interested in school. Uh, he's a top-notch player. He's uncommitted. Boom. And that, that's how we get on these players. And that's how we start following them. Uh, other than that, it's, it's almost, it's too much. It's overwhelming. So that's what I found out very early on. And when you talk about the college player, you know, our job as a college team is to win baseball games. That's it. In a great awesome case scenario, you might have three or four kids drafted off of one team. So uh, the other 32 guys on that roster need, okay. All right. So those guys are going to be the standouts, the guys that can, that are going to be drafted. They're going to have the big power. They're going to have the big arms, but the, the, all the accessory pieces that you need to win baseball games, you need to train them how to win. You need to train them how to run the bases, how to play defense correctly, bunt defenses, when to bunt, when to get a guy over, uh, game situations, when to concentrate, when not to concentrate. It's just a whole gamut of information I can't wait to uh, impart on these guys that I think they've been lacking for a long time because they've come up in this era of the radar gun is your friend, the stopwatch is your friend, and that pretty much tells the whole story for them. Yeah. I I always call it, I call it the showcase era. You know, it's it's just what it is. And you're learning, you're not even learning. You're you're attempting to throw hard because that's going to get you that scholarship and might even get you drafted, but you're not really learning how to get guys out, how to go deep into games or or when you're hitting, you're, you're trying to put on a show and BP and not really learning how to grind at bats out pitch selection, all of those things. And would you say, obviously you're going after talented players. That's of course, the number one thing you're still going to look for talented players, but would you say that it's equally as important to have that culture and that system for a program? Like if you recruited, let's say uh, you have the number one recruiting class in the country, but you don't have that culture and that system. And you put those players out there, like it's summer ball. Do you think in a, in a collegiate setting, that team doesn't win? 
Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, and that's another thing that I, I, I stress big time is, is team chemistry and uh, to be in that clubhouse together as one and pulling for each other uh, that wins games. Uh, that wins games in 2003, we had our bench was Brian Banks. Uh, we had Mike Redman. We had uh, Mike Mordecai. We had uh, Todd Hollinsworth. Uh, we had Andy Fox. That was our bench. And those guys knew their role. They knew that Jack McKeon played eight guys every day and he was going to wait until someone's arm fell off or you just were bleeding from the ears before he pulled you off the field. He had his eight guys and they went out there every single day. So these guys barely got to play. Maybe once a week, they were lucky to get in. Every 10 days, they get some at-bats here or there. But they knew their role, and they supported that role. They supported us as starters on the field, and they embraced it. And it made me really sad after 2003 when we won it. They were such an integral part of why we won that the next year they decided to change pieces out because they could get cheaper talent, cheaper replacements for those guys just because – they were, they had been around for a little while. They're making a little bit more money, but they got rid of them and got cheaper play, replacements on the bench. Not to say they weren't great players in and of themselves, but they didn't embrace that role like those guys did and create that cohesiveness that our team thrived on. And I think that they were a huge part of why we won. When they took that, that away, we weren't as good a team. And that's a great point because in college, I think it's even more so, right? You have way more players on your roster, even on the travel roster, uh, but even guys that aren't on the travel roster that they still play a huge part in what you're doing, whether it's in practice and uh, whether it's just the way that these guys are interacting with each other. And uh, that's why I always think I, I was interested to get your perspective on that is just how important that that baseline culture and program is. And sure, you can say what you want about Vanderbilt getting all of the studs, but they get the studs for a reason. It's because of what Tim Corbin is built there with the culture. But I, I could say the same thing about Duke, right? When your son went to Duke and I always just I'm referring to that because that's a program I saw go from where it was to where it is. They were not good. And before he got to Duke, they were the, the basement of the ACC. And Chris Pollard found the players that, I mean, Griffin wasn't the top 10 player in the country. He was a really good player, but he wasn't a top 10 player in the country. Uh, a lot of those guys that ended up getting drafted really high were not top 10, top 20, top 100 players in the country, but they were guys that he identified. And so I think that's what's really interesting about it is you can find the guys that fit the culture and then build that culture. And uh, you can build a winning program. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the top end talent. That's what I love about baseball. But the last thing I wanted to ask you about college, because this is part of what might make it more difficult is the transfer. There's transferring that is rampant and it's not just in baseball. Basketball has it maybe even worse. And the tough part about basketball is you can leave any year. You can leave the first year. You can leave the second year. Baseball, it's generally three. You can be draft eligible if you're older in your second year. But we're seeing transferring with the new transfer portal as, as rampant as ever. And there are situations where it makes sense. A player can get a better opportunity elsewhere. You, you want them to do the best for themselves, maybe their family, whatever it may be. But at the same time, we're seeing players that maybe have a good year at a mid-major school and they're jumping to go to a bigger school. And it's like, where's the uh, appreciation for the school that gave you an opportunity and those types of things. Uh, is that something that you think is going to change? Is, is college baseball going to start to push back a little bit on the amount of shuffling we're seeing uh, through the transfer portal? Cause I, I know I've, I've heard from a lot of different coaches, a lot of different people that this is a bit crazy right now. Uh, and you want to support the players, but this is like a weird spot right now. Yeah, it's insane. And I didn't know anything about the transfer portal until I started my new job. You know, I, I had no idea this existed because as far as I knew, when you want to transfer between division one and division one, you take a year off. And that was the penalty for leaving the program. Like you said, that recruited you that had supported you and that you're currently on their roster. Now I want to leave because I don't know, maybe I'm not getting enough of playing time or I don't get along with the coach or I don't like the school. So I want to get an opportunity somewhere else. Well, now I have to sit out an entire year, lose a year of eligibility, and then try to go pick up and start somewhere new all over, fresh. Now they can just say, you know what? I don't like this program anymore. I'm in the transfer portal, and hopefully the next few days I'll get picked up by somebody else, and I'm with a new team playing. Like, So when I looked at the transfer portal, we were I was looking with one of my coaches um, early on when I was at the stadium one day, and you know Charlotte, who is in – our conference, they won the division this year. They won the conference this year. They had 14 players in the transfer portal off their team. 
you know, you're talking about a 35 kit roster, you know, 40% of the team is now gone. They're in the, in the transfer quarter getting ready to go somewhere else. I mean, how, I, I think at the minimum, they should have limits on how many kids can, can be put themselves. And I heard old dominion had 23. Oh my gosh. I heard old dominion had, had a magical year this year. Had a phenomenal year. Um, so- but, that's half, the thing. half over half the team wanting to get out of there. I mean, what did that do to your program? How do you replace those players? You got to hand picks emergency at the very end, just to, just to feel the team to get out there and play. Yeah. I don't that's programs or the coaches or anything like that. I think there should be a limit on how many can, can jump ship. And even then um, I'm not a big fan. I, I like the penalty where you have to make a, a serious decision. If you want to sit out an entire year uh, to leave the school that, that recruited you. Yeah, that's the crazy thing to me is, is that you're seeing a school like Old Dominion has a magical season um, and was probably one of the best stories in college baseball heading into the postseason, just how good they were. I mean, Justin Verlander wasn't jumping shit from Old Dominion uh, when he turned into the guy that he was. And that's that's where it gets very difficult for me, because it's like I understand these guys, they want to get their best opportunity for themselves. But also these coaches, right, like that's how they feed their families is winning ball games. And if you have to start over every time you exceed expectations, it's going to be really hard to consistently win. And uh, that's going to be something that I'm interested to see how it develops. But uh, the, the other thing uh, that, and I know we're going to, we're going to talk about college baseball consistently now that it's a big part of your life. And I'm going to remind you all the time that I still have four years of eligibility um, and I still turn 24 for another 10 days. So uh, we still have some eligibility there, uh, but the home run derby, that is going to be a lot of fun. And we talked about that in episode one, where this is going to be one of the most electric derbies I think we've seen in a long time we finally have the field set and it is a pretty, pretty wild group of power hitters. You've got Otani versus Juan Soto in the first round, which is a crazy one, eight draw because how is Juan Soto the eighth seed in any, it's based on home runs, but like, come on, Salvador Perez versus Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso is the defending champ from 2019. Joey Gallo versus Trevor story. Gallo hits the ball as far as anybody has 10 home runs in his last 11 games. Trevor story is going to have the home crowd behind him. Cause it's probably going to be one of his last appearances at cores before he's traded. And then you've got Matt Olson versus Trey Mancini. Olson's got crazy power. Mancini's the story. The crowd's going to be behind him too. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And I always think I always want to take some of the, the dark horses. Cause a guy like Mancini, like we talked about, just it's going to barrel baseballs. But how do you not take somebody like Shohei Otani, who has 32 home runs uh, and is able to just launch the ball without issue? Uh, how are you looking at this field? And who do you think, you know, odds on, who, who, do, who do you think is going to run away with it? Or is it going to be one of those where it could be anybody's? You're talking about, you know, Coors Field, which I think uh, levels the playing field quite a bit. It puts anybody in the mix uh, with course field, because like we talked about, you know, what kind of balls are they going to use? Uh, because they like to use the, you know, they put them in like a, a freezer before they, they bring them out for the, the home run derby. So they're hard as a rock. They fly like crazy. Cause that's what the people want to see. And I agree with that. I agree with that hundred <clears throat> percent. So the course field factor evens the field out for me. And I think a lot of times when you've got a guy that's never done a home run derby for it and doesn't know what to expect, it's a lot of swings. It's physically taxing to do what they do to swing so hard every single uh, pitch that comes in there. And with the new format, which I'm not a big fan of, I like the 10 out format much better than the four minute format. <clears throat> you take and force, take a bat right now and get up and swing for four minutes straight as hard as you can every four seconds or however fast the pitches come in. It's taxing. It's taxing. Your body gets really tired. We're not used to swinging that hard for one. We're not used to swinging that hard for that long. Um, so I think it's going to be a, a stamina thing as well. You look at Otani, Gallo, I think for me, has got to be the top two uh, in that group, uh, Otani and Gallo, because, I mean, Otani's just effortless, you know, with that frame, the way he uses his body to get behind a swing. Uh, it doesn't look like he's having to put much effort into it at all. And Which is important from what you just said. Absolutely. He can use that body to, to help that swing outward. The, the arm swingers, the guys that are really trying to muscle the ball out, they have a less chance, I think, in a home run derby situation of winning. 
I think that's why Pete Alonso was so good in 2019 is to me, he doesn't seem like there's a lot of effort in that swing either, at least from what it looks like to me, where he just, he's one of those guys that just flicks it out of there. And it just doesn't seem like it's much of a problem. Matt Olson, he like, he's got, he's got a lot of movement in like, just a lot of energy in that swing. So I'm interested to see how that all goes into effect. Also Trevor story, right? He's going to have the crowd behind him, but that guy's not as effortless as maybe some of the others. Uh, Juan Soto though, I'm interested to see it's his first all-star game. It's his first Derby, which is wild because it feels like Soto has been dominating now for like three years, but it's his first all-star game. I think he's one of the most prolific hitters I think or will be one of the most prolific hitters once we're all done here him and Vladdy in my opinion is is in terms of just pure pure hitters but with Otani and and then I want to ask you about Soto but Otani specifically what makes him so just capable of generating that kind of power you you touched on it there but I don't know if people really understand how different it is what we're seeing from him. Uh, not only because he throws hundred on the mound, but he, he has that unorthodox hitting style that it's a little bit different with the way they hit from Japan. And there's a little bit more forward movement that generally is, is not good, right? Like that forward movement. If you do it too early, you actually sap your power. So how is he able to generate that without sapping his power and dragging the barrel? Like how does he have that movement while still making it so effortless? Well, for me, it's all the hips and the shoulders. As long as that piece stays together, because a lot of times when you've got a lot of movement forward, something's going to leave. Like I'm anticipating a pitch, so my my hips might leave a little early. So that breaks that chain of power for me. So it's got to be the hips and shoulders are, are, are one piece. So when they're together and he keeps this together, as the body shifts forward, he keeps his hips and shoulders together. And then with that little body momentum going forward, then he released releases the hips and the shoulders on top of that. That just adds to the, to the bat speed that adds to the power. And he's a big dude, man. He's a big dude with long levers. Uh, he's got a very long bat path and the eye hand coordination, you know, I, Ichiro was on our team and I was play, I played against him for years and the skill level it took for him to hit like he did. He's almost running out of the box. Or he, he makes contact with the ball and to have the hand-eye coordination, be able to make solid contact while you're doing that was insane to me. And that's how people hit in Japan. They look at, they idolize guys like Ichiro. And when I went over there, uh, when we signed him, we, we did a clinic for a thousand little leaguers and they're all big leg kicks, a lot of movement forward. That's the way they hit. So at a young age like that, I think they train their hand-eye coordination and their body coordination to be in sync like Otani has, I mean, he's taken it to another level for sure. I mean, he just broke the Matsui's record for home runs for a, by a Japanese player. And we're talking about it's the 8th of July or 9th of July. It's crazy. Yeah, we're so, not even at the all-star break. And, the all-star break. and, and he's got 32. So um, he's just an intriguing individual all the way around for me. It's like we might be, you know, we're watching history here. I agree. And, and that's something that we always talk about it. Jack McMullen, uh, one of our hosts, uh, the just baseball podcast. And he also is uh, the play by play voice for the Fort Wayne tin caps. And uh, he is just always reminding uh, listeners, like just appreciate this greatness. Like, you don't realize how special this is. Just, just appreciate it. Just watch it. Like take the time to watch it. And anytime Otani's on, I, I'm, I'm putting it on. And uh, cause I know I'm going to be telling my kids that I got to see him play no matter how long, his career is, I hope it's 20 years, but even if it was three years, I will still be telling my kids about this because it's been so incredible to watch. I wasn't planning on asking you about this, but now you jogged my memory. And this is what I want to wrap up with is, can you tell the story about going to recruit Ichiro and, and getting that done? Because I think that's pretty crazy. I don't even know if I've heard the entire story, but I didn't know you guys went out there. And, and for people that might not know, or might have forgotten Ichiro was a Marlin for a couple seasons and actually picked up his 3000th hit uh, MLB hit. That is he had over 4,500 total between the two leagues uh, with the Marlins and played a really good role in a, in a bench role and was on honestly like a really high end fourth outfielder and ended up racking up like 300, 400 at bats. But what was the story behind going to recruit him and getting him to sign with the Marlins? Well, um, I wasn't part of the process of getting to recruit him, but, I was part of the process when we went over to, to Tokyo to, for the press conference when we signed him. Oh, wow. It's, uh, you know, my former boss, David Sampson calls me and he goes, Hey, do you want to go to Tokyo on Saturday? And this is probably like, I think it was Friday. And he said, you want to go to Tokyo on Tuesday with me? And uh, we're going to, 
go over there for, for, uh, you know, Ichiro's press conference and we're going to be there when he, when he signs and he's going to go out to dinner and then I'm like, hell yeah, I'm in for that for sure. So we had shoes on the ground for about 44 hours in Tokyo. That's how long we were there. We, we got in there for this press conference that was like, unlike any press conference I've ever seen. It's more like a Super Bowl press conference. I mean, there were hundreds of reporters there, microphones. You know, it was just uh, insane. Because when you think about, you know, like, say, Michael Jordan in America, Ichiro is like that in Japan, but even on another level. He is up on this pedestal. And I was told a story that when they were thinking about, they were uh, adding a new bill to their currency and they were taking, uh, not votes, but they were seeing who whose face they should put, put on the bill. Ichiro was one of the faces they were considering on putting on a bill over in Japan. That's how big he is over there, all right? So when you have a, a press conference that has a thousand media members from all over their country covering this, uh, it's insane to watch him in the element in Tokyo. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I would almost say it's it's almost like a pop star meets a premier athlete, right? Like it's just unmatched from anything we've seen in this realm. Because in our in our Western world, I guess in in the United States, it's it's a little bit segmented where you have people that love celebrities of actors, actresses, singers, whatever, and then you have people that are way more excited about uh, athletes, right? But in Japan, everybody's excited about Ichiro, right? That seems to be the big difference is, is everybody, even if they don't watch the baseball games, they appreciate what Ichiro has done to, I guess, bring his culture to the United States to uh, be a representative of Japan. And I think Otani's heading right in that direction, right? I mean, what, what he's doing here and with the way that uh, he's being appreciated by, by Americans, I think that has people in Japan really fired up. They, they have Otani watch. I'm pretty sure like all the time, anytime he's up, it like cuts to him. Uh, and that they are just really excited about it. And I think it's good for major league baseball too. Uh, Japan has a great league of their own, obviously. And, and it's right there. I'd probably say it's the second most competitive league in the world besides uh, major league baseball. But uh, this is good for major league baseball to get more Japanese fans involved as well, because that was something I noticed at the Marlins games is you'd always have a nice little section of Japanese fans just so amped in there to see Ichiro chase 3000. And uh, that's what I'm hoping baseball will do a better job of. And this is another thing I always tease it into the next episode is that I do want to start talking to you about growing the game too. And, you know, things that baseball can do marketing wise, because I'm not a believer that, there isn't this young interest in it because I think uh, a lot of what we have going on at just baseball is an example of the fact that there is a lot of young interest. It's just tapping into it. So I'm excited to talk to you about that, but final to wrap up, you're saying Otani wins the Derby. I'm going to say Otani or Gallo. That's my, it's going to come down to those two guys. I'm going to go with those two. I I think Otani, I really do. Cause I think he's going to, he's going to soak up that, uh, that limelight and that, that atmosphere and he's going to thrive there. Absolutely. I'm with you. I don't see how Otani loses, but you never know. And he's got a tough challenge with Juan Soto out of the gate. But like you said, it's a different animal when you've never done it before. And it's his first all-star appearance. So it's going to be fun. Next time we talk, it will be after the Derby. So we will have a little bit of a recap on that and be able to talk about it and see what the outcome was and see if your theory on, on some guys running out of gas, which I think is not even a theory, it's a fact. See how it gets into a factor there at altitude as well, right? Because it's tougher to breathe out there also. So it should be interesting, but I'm excited to talk about it. Episode three is in the books. We're rolling now. And next time we talk, you'll be back in your fancy man cave. We will have some post draft discussion as well as some post all all-star break discussion. So I'm looking forward to that. A lot of fun things ahead. As always, thank you for listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. And we will be back on Thursday with another episode. Talk to you then.